Greetings and welcome to EHA Unplugged, the official podcast channel of the European Hematology Association, EHA. Hi, my name is Wilson. I'm with EHA Education. And today we're speaking to Professor Yankos about how to get papers published. So, Professor Yankos, can you introduce yourself? Sure, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, so, my name is Jan Kools. I'm from the University of Leuven and the VIB in Flanders, uh, Belgium. I'm uh, myself, I'm a, a basic researcher mostly and involved in uh, genetics of leukemia. I'm studying genetics of leukemia, trying to also identify mutations that are involved in uh, leukemia development or progression and also model that then in cell models and uh, mouse models. But in addition to that, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Hemisphere, the journal of EHA, which is a job that I really like to do. And um, where I see all the new articles coming in, um, initiate the review process, work together with a team of uh, 12 associate editors to handle all the reviewing of the, of the manuscripts. And uh, it's great to see all the um, exciting new uh, research that is performed and is coming through the journal. So as someone who has uh, written, published and also reviewed countless scientific articles, you know how important it is to share our findings, knowledge and uh, results in writing. So I hope you can help our listeners with some questions and about getting papers published. So how do you first choose the journal to submit your paper to? Yeah, that's, that's a, always a, a difficult one. Um, I see also my own PhD students or postdocs or myself of course, when we try to publish we look at, um, at different things. First of all, the article that you have needs to fit into the scope of, of the journal. And it's fitting into the scope is probably something that you can easily see if you look what the journal has published recently. You can see if the similar type of articles have been there. And if you think uh, the novelty of your findings are good for, for that journal. But in addition, of course, to that, many, paper, many people look at the impact factor uh, of a journal. It's also something we discussed during the, the session yesterday. Um, and impact factor is a, is a number that a lot of people are using. It's somehow dangerous to focus too much on the impact factor because it's just a number that is calculated based on the number of citations, based on the number of publications in a journal. And it's easy to play a little bit as for, for a journal, to play a little bit with these numbers to to uh, increase your impact factor in a kind of artificial way. But on the other hand, it's also something that many people look at. And so it's also not something totally to neglect uh, what the impact factor of journals are. And it gives you some idea of um, where the journals are in, the, in their fields, whether they are really top uh, in, you know, innovating journals or whether they are just publishing more uh, confirmatory, confirmatory studies, which would result in a typically lower impact factor. I myself do not look too much to the impact factor, I, I try to look at impact that a journal makes as much more than just the impact factor. And if you look into the hematology journals, I think we can all say safely yeah, that Blood is one of the journals that makes a lot of impact in the field. They publish a lot of articles, they publish high quality articles, they also have a long history already of publishing. And with Hemisphere we try to be there as well now, we try to really focus on those uh, high quality articles, high quality review articles to publish, and we also aim to be a journal that makes a lot of impact. And what, uh, what's your opinion about open access and non-open access? True, that's also something to consider of course, and I think more and more of the researchers choose to publish in open access journals, which I also support completely. Hemisphere is also a fully open access journal, 
I think it makes no sense to uh, do a lot of research, publish it in a journal that is not accessible to everyone. And I think uh, yeah, part of being involved in research is also sharing your data here at the meeting, but also in, in publications. And then open access is, I think, the way to go. And it's more and more that we see that also the more traditional journals switch to open access. So I would definitely also recommend to publish most in, in open access journals, or at least in an open access way, even if the journal itself is not fully open access. And I've seen uh, some groups have a certain um, tendency to um, prefer publishing small articles, short articles, and long, big, complicated ones. Will that impact um, the? Uh, how will that impact the paper? Mm -hmm. the, yeah, I think I think it's good to have a mixture of longer and shorter articles. Some studies that you do you think are going to work out well, but then suddenly you, you face a number of problems and you cannot complete the study as you wish uh, from the beginning. And then you end up with a shorter study, which is, I think, still valuable to publish. I think publishing shorter uh, articles or letters with some important findings can be important because maybe sometimes as a researcher, you, you yourself, you cannot do something with those data, but others might be, find that useful. And so when you publish that, it becomes available to the, to the scientific community and they can see it. So I think a good balance between longer and shorter articles is good. And of course, if you have something that is, is, um, is short, I, I think you should still find a way to publish that. Um, so what can we do to make a paper more attractive and likely to be more accepted? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, uh, of course, having an, a nice, clear paper starts with having good data. And good data starts with having a good research plan and having, but that's happened before. So once you end up with all your data and you want to write it up in, in an article, it's good to, to critically think what you will include in your research article and what not. It's not always good to include all the data that you have on a certain study. You have to think what really contributes to the story that I want to tell in my article. And sometimes then, some experiments that you've done but that do not really provide good evidence for your work and not provide good support the, the findings of your, of your work, it's probably better not to include that and maybe keep that for later studies. So keep it, keep it a, a clear story that you want to tell and focus on those data that contribute to that. Of course you don't have, need to do cherry picking of data but you need to pick the, the data that really contributes yeah. and not add a substantial amount of additional data not contributing to the story. And in, and in addition to that, of course, write, a, write in a clear way, clear, uh, direct way to really present the data well in the text and also in the figures. Uh, having clear figures is, I think, key because that's something that reviewers always uh, look at from the beginning. Are the data good? Do I understand the figures carefully? So if a figure is not clear or very confusing, then it will also end up with a lot of questions from reviewers, which will complicate the whole publication process. So I think a clear text and having clear figures is key for improving your paper. Sure, definitely. So now that you've written your paper, you need to get it submitted. So the process of getting your paper published may sound straightforward, but it's actually quite challenging. <laughs> Can definitely. <laughs> so do you have any tips for the submission process? to make it smooth for us writers and uh, submitters, sorry, reviewers and people behind the journal. Is there anything that could make this uh, exchange quicker, smoother, easy? Yeah, I think the submission process by itself is, at many journals now, a relatively straightforward process. 
there's even some AI used in that so that uh, documents that you submit, like a word file that you submit, all the names are recognized and the title is recognized and the abstract is recognized automatically. So you don't need to type that in in all the different boxes that goes in an automatic way. So that's a user-friendly way of submitting these days uh, your manuscript. But then of course, if it gets to reviewers, uh, it's, uh, it's very important that reviewers see a clear paper and the clear figures as, as we just discussed. Mm -hmm. That will help them to understand your work and also to avoid that, you, that they come up with lots of questions uh, for your paper. So the better you are, the better shape your paper is of course at the time that you submit it, the easier it will be for the reviewers to understand and hopefully also the easier for them to be positive on, on your work. But then when, of course, many articles do not get accepted straight away, and we, we rarely have that. I think there's always some comments that reviews make, sometimes only minor comments, sometimes also a few major comments. Sometimes, of course, we also have to reject papers after review because reviewers have too many questions or indicate that, that the results are not clear enough. And even when you have a rejection, I think it's good to take time to read the comments of the reviews carefully and to accept that. So accept that the reviews have these have made these comments. Um, and then you can have then you have two choices. Either you can say, okay, I will try to improve my paper based on the comments of the reviews and submit it to another journal. Or maybe I also try to submit it back to the same journal. Because even after rejection, that's a possibility. If you still think that you can do the, uh, that you can solve the question that the reviews have and that with this your paper becomes much more clear, much improved, you can always ask uh, the editor to reconsider the rejection yeah, so that you can send it back to the journal. But with major revision, I think it's very important that you carefully read the, the critique of the reviews and respond to that in a, in a proper way. Uh, in a clear way. Sometimes you cannot do experiments that reviewers ask or you, cannot, you do not agree with the reviews. Why do you have the right to state that, that you don't agree with the reviewer? At least for maybe a few points, not for everything, <laughs> but for a few points you can say, okay, I've done 90% of the questions that the reviewers had, but the last question I found that too much or I find that not useful for my paper. Well, authors have the right to state this and it's up to the editors to take all these things into, into account and to then decide whether or not they can accept the manuscript after the revision. What about reviewers' anonymity? So, very often now journals ask to suggest, or you suggest reviewers for your paper and you discard all the others too. Mm -hmm. Are they used? And do you find also that it's important that the, the reviewers stay anonymous? Yeah, there's some debate. Uh, some journals um, prefer now that review names are public, are made public after the review process. And I think the idea behind that is that, yeah, then the reviewer is also accountable for what he or she has uh, as, uh, as a reviewer comments during the, the, the process. So there's a number of journals that publish the, or that ask the reviews if they want, if they agree to publish their names, if they agree to publish their reviewer comments. So in that way, it's of course, um, yeah, it's, it's maybe a security to, to avoid that reviewers are always negative or too negative for certain articles. But other, in, on the other hand, I, I do find that it's probably better to keep the reviewers anonymous because then you could always have um, negative effects if you as a, as a reviewer really had strong ne negative comments on the paper that were valid and your name is there and it may be a risk that also that group will then be negative for your future papers or so. So I think anonymous is potentially better. 
Uh, we do at Hemisphere. We do take. Uh, we do ask authors to uh, suggest possible reviewers. We also ask them if there are reviews that they want to avoid. Uh, reviews that they want to avoid. We typically always uh, follow that advice. Reviews they prefer is of course we can choose from those, but we do not necessarily choose from those, and maybe only one of the suggested reviewers. It helps us as editors to also find new possible reviewers because we have a database of reviewers, but we do not always want the same reviewers. So some suggestions from the authors can be useful. We of course check if they do, did not have any co-publications and otherwise they may be too good friends to the authors to be too positive. But it can be helpful. Um, but it's not always, uh, definitely not always the case that the reviewers that the authors have suggested are the most positive reviewers. Sometimes they may think that they will be positive, but it's not always the case. So I, I think in, in, all, in all ways, I think having a good balance of three or four reviewers for uh, a manuscript gives the editors a good balance of views of how they feel. And if all the reviewers are very negative about the paper, it's clear that there's something wrong with the paper, something wrong with the data maybe, and we should not publish it yet, at least not in that form. If all three or four reviews are very positive, then it's of course also an easy uh, decision. If the reviewers are a little bit um, unbalanced, so that you have more positive and, and negative reviewers with stronger negative comments, then it's up to the editor to, to read really the comments and see if he or she agrees with what is written there. And if it's really if the negative comments are really so negative that it, the paper should be rejected, or if they are negative but can be uh, used for the revision, and so then we go for a major revision. Reviews are extremely important in this process. It's, it's these experts that give their opinion about the work and it's, uh, it's getting more and more difficult to convince people to, to do the review work and to do the review work in a proper way so that they take time to do it and read the, all, the, all the results of the article in, in detail. Uh, so that's definitely something that uh, we all should work on because it's important for the whole scientific community that reviewers can do their work, that reviewers are happy to do their work and so we definitely want to, uh, yeah, want to uh, stimulate that with Hemisphere also, that reviewers do it and also get some reward at the end to doing it. So we have we use Peplons now as a system to give some reward that reviewers are uh, acknowledged for the work they do and there may be other, way, other ways in the future to thank reviewers for their work. You mentioned Peplon. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So Peplon is, Peplons is a way where reviewers can uh, register themselves for free and then each time they review for a journal, it's uh, registered in that uh, website. And at the end of the year, you have a clear overview of all the reviewer work you've done. And you can use that for your institution, for example. If your institution will review you, will, will evaluate you in the future, you can you have your articles that you have written yourself, that published yourself, you have other outputs. But also this reviewer work is something that we think is important. And so we also feel it's something that uh, investigators should be able to use in, in a way so that they can show that they have uh, spent some time in for those uh, reviews. And that's uh, Peblons is a way to, to organize it and keep track of that in, an, uh, in a coordinated way and an official way so, the, so that reviews can also not misuse that. It's typically to the journals that all this information is going to the database so that's a, a, a nicely locked system for all the review activity. So uh, recently we've been seeing an increase of uh, people, writers, using uh, the AI programs as an aid to uh, write text, create uh, creative ways of um, creating different texts. Um, so for these programs, 
AI programs. Uh, how how do you think it is affecting scientific writing now, and how what's it like in the future? Yeah, that's a very important question. We of course will uh, will we need to face that, and we need to work on that. It's we don't have any atmosphere, we don't have any strict policy right now on, on how to use uh, such AI systems for your text, but it's something we, we really need to work on. Uh, at my university, for example, there's a whole um, idea worked out of how students can use it in their courses, how students can, can use that, uh, these programs. I think these programs are definitely useful to potentially correct your text that you have written, and we are all not native, or most of us are not native English speakers, and so it's always difficult to write and correct text in English. I think those uh, AI systems can maybe be used to your text that you have written, go through the system and to further improve it, correct it, uh, without <laughs> adding new data, but just correcting your language. It's also a way, of course, to do potentially in the future uh, literature searches. We do that now through PubMed, typically, where mm -hmm. it's a lot of work to go to the whole literature. Maybe these AI systems can do that for you in a, in a, in a more organized way, but we need to check carefully that this is happening in, in the correct way also, but it can definitely assist you in some of these things. Um, and it can perhaps also help in um, uh, analyzing your figures even. And uh, if the figures are clear, if the colors of the figures are clear, and there's ways to also improve colors in scientific uh, publication, for example, for colorblind people, it's not always easy if you're not colorblind yourself to investigate, to, to uh, foresee how people with, uh, with uh, colorblindness will, will look at your figures, so the choice of colors they can help. And so maybe all these things together, I see a role for them to help the, uh, and support the researchers to improve their work, but not really to write the text from scratch, because then we could have some fantasy from these AI systems that, that is going into the texts as well. So I have understood that at now, right now it's not really working very well for scientific uh, articles, because titles and, and authors and, and content is not always nicely connected in, in the systems, but that will definitely improve also in the future. So I think in such a way, if it's supporting the researcher, I, I, I see that this can definitely can be used uh, as long as the researcher itself is fully accountable for the content of the text. So I see there's some kind of a need of some kind of system where you can detect uh, mm. texts written by the AI programs, for example, to, 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 to see if there's any plagiarism or fabrication. Do we have that in place at the moment? Yes, so for plagiarism we have uh, tools to screen that and I think that's very important also because it's um, it sometimes happens that have people copy texts and uh, and especially when it's not then uh, not not cited well or not cited correctly that's definitely a major problem so we have uh, tools to, to detect plagiarism um, those will those are working fine and those will be uh, kept on working I think with AI the problem is that maybe those texts might be changed but then also changed in a way that it's not necessarily the, the real truth anymore so that's definitely something that we have to have rules on of how uh, artificial intelligence is used because it, these systems can, uh, can have some fantasy mm. and, and, and create some knowledge that is not really supported by, by scientific literature. So that, that's definitely something we have to, uh, to guide and have to make rules about and how we can use it, what we can and what we cannot do. So will there be a time when, uh, let's say in the um, author section, there will be a section for 
the AI program. <laughs> yeah. Well, authors, I'm not sure if you need to call it an author, but definitely in the acknowledgements yes. uh, or in any um, other section of the, of the articles, we, if we use uh, some person in addition, I think it's always good. We, we typically have that also. If we now use scientific writers for some types of articles, I think they may not be authors because they have only corrected the English or so, but it's definitely good to acknowledge them and to mention them and say this text was finally read by this person, was corrected by this person. So be open and be clear about who has worked on the article is, is key to correct scientific publications. Okay. Thank you.